Uh, God's also been gracious in delivering us uh, Dr. Blake Neff. Amen. Uh, as we start, let's give him a little encouragement and affirmation. All right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, a time to be able to uh, once again uh, recognize how you are at work in the lives of the people in the scriptures, but also how you're alive in our lives. Thank you, God, for the things that we're learning, for the things that we must now apply. Father, if all we're going to do is be listeners and not doers, then we've failed your word, and we don't want to do that. So may your Holy Spirit nudge us and move us to those places of uncomfortability, and uh, may we just recognize the sign of the times and, uh, and be a people who uh, sense your, your Holy Spirit at work in us. We thank you for the sound of children outside. Lord, thank you for the blessing of this camp for people of all ages. And may we now grow and be prepared to go uh, uh, more prepared for the day ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I still have more of these copies just in case you are coming in for the last day and you need an outline or you lost one. Good morning. I think we've got a new definition of the remnant now. It's the people that are left in class on Friday when everybody else has been bailing. But I'm glad for your presence here. This is kind of reminiscent of the way things work at the university uh, just before spring break. It doesn't matter when spring break is. Uh, every student needs at least two extra days uh, to get to where they're going and a couple to get back and those kind of things. So this is kind of uh, reminiscent of that. Uh, I just want to take a moment to thank you for your hospitality. It has been a joy uh, to be here. I, I, I sense that some of you have been on the camp circuit and other places to know. Uh, but for those of you who don't, this is a unique place, an unusual place. And uh, part of that... Uh, much of that has to do with the facilities, but much of that has to do with the people as well and just the hospitality that you uh, extend. And Nancy and I have felt that these days. You've been gracious to our grandson, and uh, he has benefited spiritually uh, from being a part of the kids' program, and we're grateful for that. So thank you very much for, uh, for these days. We want to uh, finish up now uh, uh, where we have uh, been working on this idea that you and I in 21st century America are a remnant and maybe the best place for us to find uh, some, uh, some guidance and direction is from an original remnant or an earlier remnant and that is the Babylonian remnant. It was Hans Fize who was a Chinese uh, philosopher who lived about 250 years before Jesus who said on one occasion, knowing the facts is easy. Knowing how to act based on the facts is difficult. I want to submit to you that what we've done in these first four sessions is to lay out some facts. Now, we've had a period of negotiation here in terms of what are the facts, uh, but I think what we've actually accomplished is the facts. And here's how I see those facts. Christians in America have failed to be salt. I don't think I'm getting anybody arguing with me about that. We may be arguing about what we do next and so on, but I think most of us are agreeing when, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying to you and me, you ought to be preserving and purifying our, your culture. This culture is not being preserved and purified the way most of us in this room would like for it to be. Hence, we are responsible. We've failed to be salt. Secondly, I have made the point 
uh, as a result, God is allowing Christians to be marginalized in America. Now, somebody spoke to me, I think it was in the dining hall the other day, and talked about how that for them was a new concept. And if nothing else, uh, help this particular individual uh, deal with some anger issues over what's happening in America. And it's so easy for us to say, you know, they, they did this, and they won't let us do that, and this. Uh, and I, I think, and I want to say more about this later, don't want to steal all my illustrations and thunder at this point, but the reality is that God is doing something in America. And uh, part of that may be punishment. Part of that may be a wonderful, wonderful appointment because, you know, it's out of the remnant that grows the seed of something better and bigger and even more grand. So uh, God is doing something. As a result of this marginalization, what I tried to establish is that Christians are tempted, and we're tempted to deny, to dramatize, uh, to defy, and say, you're not moving me. I'm in the mainstream. I'm staying right here to despair and say, oh, woe is me, what's happening to Christianity in America? Or the worst, the most incipient, I think, of all the temptations, the temptation to deal, to, to, to negotiate with those who are mainstream these days and to give up a little bit of what we have traditionally believed and say, if you'll let me have authority, let me have power, I'll do this. We have to guard against that, church. We have to be so very, very careful that we, and one of the ways I've been suggesting that we do that is to, is to contemplate in advance. What are the things you're going to live for? Uh, keep Micah in mind. I just love that email that I shared with you the other day uh, from Micah who says, I'm going to be a man of integrity. I'm not taking a grade I didn't deserve even if I can't stay in school. You know, that kid is a leader already in my book. And uh, what, what is it that you will live for? We need to think about that so that we're not tempted to deal with those who are in authority. We established also that instead, as we look at the Babylonian remnant, look back to those who were exiled in, in Babylon originally, we could see some strategies that they used. And I hope I was successful yesterday in establishing in your mind, these are strategies I can use. Even if I think Neph is nuts, and we're not yet an exile, we're not yet a remnant, that, that these are strategies you can use. And if you are with me on this and saying, look, we've been marginalized, we are called to be a remnant, then you can still use the strategies. The strategy of conviction. What are the things you believe that are non-negotiable? Uh, Daniel resolved that he wasn't going to defile himself with the king's food. The strategy of civility. That'll set you apart in America today. Uh, not a lot of folks using the strategy of civility, but there's not a law against it. You can be civil with those that disagree with you. You can be a, a civil uh, uh, debater, as it were, among those who are debating in the culture today. Then Daniel, remember, used a strategy of alternatives. What's a, what's a way that we can all win uh, in this, in this uh, what we used to call melting pot, but we're not melting anything anymore. We're just kind of mixing them all together. Uh, what is it that, where, how can we all win in some of the issues that uh, face us in America? I suggested to you that Daniel used a strategy of boldness, but I, I redefined it for you yesterday, if you heard, if you were listening carefully. It's not the kind of boldness that stands up and proclaims and says, this is the way it is. We are living like this, and the culture can go wherever. No, none of that. Instead, Daniel's boldness was to say, test us for 10 days. See what happens. 
He wasn't, he wasn't trusting in the laws of the land. He wasn't trusting in his authority or his power. He was trusting in the power of God. And Christians can't go wrong trusting that way. And then the strategy of personal relationship, it's the new way to do evangelism. The one-to-many approach is not working anymore. Uh, we can throw open the doors of the church and say, y'all come, and we'll sit there by ourselves. They're not coming. They're not coming. They're not going to come. So if you're really serious about personal evangelism, have to find ways to win people one-on-one. And I'm suggesting, and others are suggesting, I'm just parroting what other people are saying, that personal relationships are the way to do that. Then we established as among the facts that the, the remnant used some long-term strategies. And I'm, I think this has gotten more and more serious as we've gone along through the week. I am dead serious about this. I think this is so important. What are you doing to invest in the next generation? And what are you changing about your prayer life that will cause you to be effective in prayer about what's happening in America? Whatever it is that we've been praying, it ain't working, church. We need to find a new way to do it. And I suggested one of those new ways, not the only one, was the acts of prayer. We pray adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then our supplications or our requests make our requests known before God. So what are you doing in terms of these long-term strategies or what I yesterday called investments? Now, what we want to do then today is see if we can establish, in the words of Hans Fiese, what do we do about the facts? How do we act now that we know the facts? Those are the facts as I've established them. What are we going to do? How do we act? And to, to, to do that or to uncover uh, that approach, I want to call your attention to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, while you turn there, let me set the stage this way. We talked the other day about the Babylonian captivity and how it occurred beginning in 586 B.C., what happened is the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem. They sieged Jerusalem for 11 years. And finally, in 586, Jerusalem fell. When Jerusalem fell, uh, the Babylonians uh, destroyed the city. Uh, they leveled the city. They burned the city. They killed. They marauded. It was, it, was, it was a holocaust, if you will. When it was all over, they divided the survivors, the Israel, Israelite survivors, into two groups. Those that seemed to be no particular threat, probably the old and the infirmed, folks that weren't going to rise up against them, they said, you can just go ahead and live in this rubble wherever you want to. You can go in the fields outside the city here and go ahead and plant your crops and just, just go ahead and live here. Just know you're living under Nebuchadnezzar these days. And the way we'll know that you're living under Nebuchadnezzar is that once a year you send an emissary to Babylon with your tribute. And so once a year they paid their federal income tax on April 4th. Well, we don't know exactly what day it was. <laughs> but once a, day, once a year they paid their tax to the strong central government under Nebuchadnezzar that was in Babylon. And they sent someone with the tribute to go to, to, go to Babylon. Among those who stayed behind in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's prophecies are primarily to the, to the nations around Israel as he prophesies during the Babylonian exile, but from home at Jerusalem. 
Then he wrote a letter to the exiles, to Daniel, to Mordecai, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to the folks who are in exile in Babylon. He wrote a letter, and it tells us in the first part of, of chapter 29 that he sent it with the emissary who was carrying the tribute. So we know not only where the letter came from, who it's to, but how it got there. We know the postal system he used. And that letter is clearly a letter to the exiles. And it's a letter of instruction. It's a letter embedded in chapter 29, as you'll see in just a moment. Think of this letter as the epistle of Jeremiah. It is almost exactly like Paul's letters. You know how Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians? that they're studying down in the other class. Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians, and the, it was instructions to the people in Philippi. Kind of an open letter. That's the way Jeremiah's letter ought to be thought of, it seems to me. And in this letter, in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4, we find what I think are best understood as four instructions to the remnant. Four instructions to the remnant. And I'm convinced that these four instructions to the Babylonian remnant are also four instructions to the American remnant in 21st century. And I'll give you some time to challenge that in a little bit, but I appeal just hear me out on these four. First, in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now this is, notice the quotation marks in some of the more modern translations at the beginning of verse 4, because we're quoting the letter. This is the letter that Jeremiah sent down to Babylon. In fact, the end of verse 3, it said, the letter said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not increase. I want to suggest to you that we could paraphrase this first instruction to the remnant as this. Prepare for the long haul. Isn't that what Jeremiah is saying? Plant a garden because this ain't going to be over by harvest time. Go ahead and have a wife because this is not going to be over in time for you to go home and take a wife. Go ahead and have sons and daughters. And then even he goes on to suggest take wives for your sons. It was an era and an age of arranged marriages. So we're looking ahead now to the time when the next generation, and they will have children. He's talking now about your grandchildren being born here in Babylon. All of that to say, prepare for the long haul. One of the pushbacks that I get when I teach this stuff uh, in a variety of places is that I'm making too big a deal out of it, that it is not this big fundamental change that I think it is, a systemic change in the way we do business in America, that really all that needs to happen is we need to get the right people elected, or we need to get the right justices on the Supreme Court, and all this is going to change. And I'm going to tell you that I, I think that's a short-term mentality to a long-term problem. A short-term mentality to a long-term problem is not going to lead to successful strategies. See, if the roof is leaking in the tabernacle, what we could do in anticipation of the evening service is to pass out some buckets. And you all could catch the rain, 
or we could pass out, let's do umbrellas instead. That's even better. Why don't we all just sit in the evening in this section tonight under our umbrella? That's a short-term strategy. But if the roof is leaking, we got a long-term problem. And so the board's going to have to get together and talk about what do we do about the roof and the tabernacle? And nobody in, with a lick of sense on the board is going to say, well, we got umbrellas already. Just go, just let it go that way. See, that, because that's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. And the, the danger is that if we see what's happening in America, the, the exile of evangelical Christians, the marginalization of evangelical Christians, as just a short-term problem, then we develop short-term solutions, and if it's a long-term problem, that is disastrous. I can remember, I was certainly not into this, this kind of thinking back in the 1970s. I was scarcely and barely into Christian thinking in the 1970s, frankly. But I can remember seeing some political things going on, and I thought when Ronald Reagan was elected President of the United States and there was no more Jimmy Carter, and I know some of y'all in Michigan, you're only about 50-50, so excuse the political illustration, but I'm thinking at that point, there's the solution. Things are going to get better now. Things are going to be okay. That's been 40 years ago. And we've had some ups and downs, but the trend line is down. Ronald Reagan was not the solution. And I want to suggest to you that Barack Obama was not the solution and Donald Trump's not the solution. This is not a political problem. It's not a four-year problem. It's not a two-term problem. It's not a problem of the lifetime of Supreme Court justices. This is a long-term problem. And if you've got long-term, uh, if, if, if you have a problem that needs long-term thinking and you're dealing with short-term kinds of issues, you're not going to get to the right place. Am I making sense? You understand what I'm saying? So it seems to me that when Jeremiah said to the people, when Jeremiah said to the people, uh, prepare for the long term, we now know because we got 2020 hindsight looking at this historically. He's talking 70 years. Babylonian exile was 70 years. Uh, you say, are you predicting 70 years in America before we get back to the mainstream? No. I haven't got a clue. I don't know about that. Uh, here's, here's what I'm personally convinced of, that we are not going to become mainstream again in my lifetime. I'm 65, uh, and I don't expect to see Christianity as the, the fundamental way of doing business in my lifetime. I don't think it's going to happen in my kids' lifetime. Uh, my kids are late 30s, early 40s. I, I think they'll go to their grave being marginalized uh, as, they, as they continue with Jesus. I don't know beyond that. And even what I've just said, I, I, I can't honestly say that's what God is revealing to me. That's just, my, that's just my gut. That's just my hunch. It's a bigger problem than that. It's a long-term problem. Part of the reason, part of the reason I think it's, it may be that kind of numbers of years at least is it's taken that long for us to get in this mess. Someone asked me the other day uh, about the history of all this. You know, where, where did this marginalization of Christian thinking, where did this marginalization of evangelicals uh, begin? And I, I don't have a clear answer from that, for that from his, history. But something happened in America, I think, 
Is mama okay? Okay, thank you. Something happened in, his, in American history in the 1960s. Uh, I, I, I didn't graduate from high school until 1970, uh, so I was too young. My dad would have killed me if I'd tried to go into Woodstock. But something happened in the Woodstock era. Uh, the value system of Woodstock was radically different than American value system. And that, you didn't have to be an evangelical Christian to see that. You know, Christian, Christian worldview is not if it feels good, do it. Uh, and, you know, some of you who are still wrestling with my use of Obergefell versus Hodge and other uh, homosexual examples of what's happening in America, you know, I, I think what happened in the 1960s at places like Woodstock is we began, we being heterosexual, mainstream Christians, began to make a game out of marriage. Uh, marriage, we, we, we began to buy into serial polygamy. Uh, we began to buy into to the notion that marriage was kind of something people added on. It really wasn't important as long as people really committed to each other. They could just go ahead and live together. And I, I, I don't think I've said this yet in session. I've said it so many times this week. But what happened in the Oberfell versus Hodge ruling was homosexual community said, y'all are playing a game, why can't we play? Why are you discriminating against us? We just want to come to the party. And you know what? They're ahead of us in terms of their analysis of what's going on in America. We've made marriage a game. So anyway, I'm off track. I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit. But what, I, what I'm trying to say is, I think it's taken from the 60s to the, the early 21st century, second decade of the 21st century, for this marginalization to come to the point that it is. So how soon are we going to get back to where we want to be? I'm not sure we ever will, but it seems to me it's going to take 40 or 50 years at least to, to go through this gradual evolution. Jeremiah said, prepare for the long haul. And I believe through Jeremiah, that's what God is saying to us today. A second a second strategy, a second instruction for the remnant begins in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its, wealth, in its welfare you will find your welfare. I'm paraphrasing this way. I think I'm not doing, just, not doing harm to the text. Jeremiah said to the exile, to the remnant, you live as good citizens while you're over there. You pray for the community. You pray for Babylon. You pray for the king. You serve the king. You, you, you be good citizens in your exile community. And I think he would say to us, remnant, marginalized believer, be good citizens. I don't want to see a show, to, show of hands, but I do want to challenge you because I've discovered a lot of Christians who have given up on the ballot box. If you're not voting, shame on you. Now, I already said, I already said, I don't think you're going to fix it there. But man, some of those short-term reprieves are fun. Make me believe it's going to get better anyway. And there is right and wrong in terms of candidates at the ballot box. And that's really, we may have strong differences of opinion about that. But it is a privilege, a right, and listen to me, hear the word, a responsibility. It's what it means to be a good citizen. So go to the ballot box. 
But I'm also convinced that to be a good citizen is to be a good employee. In Daniel chapter 1, the king says about those guys in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than the other magicians and enchanters. I'm wondering if we would take a survey among the bosses of the people employed in this room, how many of your bosses would say, that guy's ten times better than anybody I can hire for that job. That lady does ten times better than anybody else on my staff. That's what the exile did. That's what the remnant did. They became good citizens, and as a result, they became good employees. We were just talking over the breakfast table. Uh, Dave and his wife were sharing with us about the way the economy is just absolutely exploding in northern Indiana. Uh, it's RV country, and suddenly everybody seems to have money for another RV or a new RV or a get into the RV world, and so they're selling, they're cranking those things out, and people are getting jobs in the RV factories. Well, in, 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 in and around that Napanee area in that RV country uh, are some tourist places like Shipshawan and Middlebury. And they were sharing with us at breakfast, and I hadn't heard this. We haven't been up there yet this year. But I, uh, they were sharing with us at breakfast that some of the tourist attractions in Shipshawan and Middlebury are cutting back their hours because they can't find enough staff to keep the thing open. Can't hire help. Or I'm wondering, they didn't say this, this is me now again, I'm wondering is that they can't find anybody to take the job or they can't find anybody qualified to take the job, anybody that's willing to work to take the job. I see help wanted signs all over Marion. And then I go downtown to the rescue mission where I'm working with some guys down there and I, got, I find guys laying on their cot saying, can't find anything, man. I'm wondering about that. Well, part of it is they get right up to the point where they can't pass the drug test. I understand you've got to get cleaned up and you've got to get dried out and some of those kind of things. But some of it's an attitude thing, a mentality thing. I, I knew a young man, I know a young man who graduated from high school three, four months ago. And he was planning to go to school in the fall, not a college prep kind of thing, but to learn a trade. And so he got this three or four months in between and he's going to find a job. And he went to a little local factory, and he did pass the drug test. I'm grateful for that. And they hired him. Went in on day one, and the boss set him and four or five other new hires down and said, boys, here are the rules. You get three strikes, and then you're out. Strike one is when you show up one minute past seven. Starting time's at 7 o'clock, not a minute after, not five minutes after. So the first time you don't show up at 7 o'clock, you get a warning. Second time you don't show up at 7 o'clock, I'll write the warning down so the boss knows exactly what's about to happen to you. Strike two. And the third time you don't show up, any time through the course of this summer, third time you don't show up, I'm not talking anymore, I'm not writing anymore, you're out of here. That's pretty clear, don't you think? He lasted one week. Day five, he got his third strike. I said, what's going on with you, man? Ethan, why in the world did you lose that job? I'm not a morning person. 
are some of you that aren't. I understand that. You're not a morning person. But if you got a job at 7 o'clock and you want the job, she's been at breakfast every day this week, and she's not a morning person. I mean, some of it is just a matter of saying, okay, that's not the way I'm put together. I'd surely rather work a second shift job, but this is where the job is. I don't see that happening across America. And tragically, I don't see that happening in Christian community across America. Jeremiah said, you be the best possible citizens. And we know from Daniel's earlier experience that that meant in his life to also be the best possible employee. Now let's go on. I'm in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Let me, let me explain. Chapter 28 tells us the story of Hananiah, who is also a prophet, self-proclaimed at least. And Hananiah is part of the movement that went down to Jerusalem. He's part of the exile. And so Hananiah is prophesying. Well, God said, and what Hananiah is prophesying is designed to stir up the people. In fact, at one point he said, you'll be here two years. Just, just stir it up, foment, don't serve Nebuchadnezzar. You've got you to get some backbone. Uh, all of that, a paraphrase of chapter 28, where Hananiah says, this thing isn't going to last. Now, as Jeremiah, the true prophet, sends a letter to the exile, he said, don't pay attention to your prophets and diviners who are among you and deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In short, he's saying, don't, get a, don't become a part of this rebellion. Don't get your back bowed about this business of God sending you into exile. Or I like to put it this way, even though it gets me some dissent, I can live with the dissent if we have a civil discourse. I think Jeremiah is saying to the exile, go quietly. Go quietly into exile. And I'm convinced that we are at the point today, 21st century America, where God is saying to us, go quietly into exile. Now, I've listened, I've heard you through the course of the week, several of you who have said to me, no, we got to keep fighting. And one, man, one guy made a great point. He said to me, the day before the siege ended in Jerusalem, what do you think Daniel was doing? I said, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the text. I don't know. He said he was out fighting. And we got to fight until the siege is over, until we're truly exiled. Good point. The question then before us is this, where are we on a timeline? Are we truly exiled or are we under siege and we're going to become exiled if something good doesn't happen quick? I'm convinced that the exile has begun. And I think God is saying to us, you go quietly uh, into exile. Man, this is a hard teaching. This is not just hard for you to hear. This is hard for me to say. Uh, when Steve Deneff preached a similar series in our church back at College Wesleyan Church, he said it's like saying to a teenager, you go to your room. And we teenagers don't want to go to our room. I don't want to go to my room. I don't want to sit on a chair. I don't want to be disciplined. I want to be in charge. 
I, for one, am convinced, and you'll get a mic in a moment, uh, I, for one, am convinced that the time of exile has begun. It's tough. It's tough for Americans because we are a rights-oriented society. The framers of the Constitution worked hard to make sure that the Bill of Rights was the first ten amendments. We are, we are, since the beginning of time, a people who have recognized, I've got my rights. I mean, that's what it was all about. That's why we're not, why we're not paying tribute to the, to the crown, to Britain, because we said, I got my rights. That's what it means to be an American. But here's what I've, here's what I've been thinking on. It's been fairly easy to be a Christian for 250 years in America. Nobody else in the world, at least no culture that I've come in contact with, has had the tremendous freedom that you and I have to practice our faith. What God, I believe, is calling us to is this, to be like the rest of the Christian community. That's going to take a reprogramming of my rights-oriented thinking. I've wrestled with this every place I've taught. I was at another camp. And we were set up on Friday, Saturday, Sunday for me to teach this stuff. And so Friday night I did the first session and there was a guy there in the camp who said, man, that's nuts. I, I'm an American. I, I'm, I'm going to sue until they won't let me sue anymore. I, I'm going I'm, I'm to know my rights. And I let him go. I, you know, I let him run with the, with the microphone for a while. And I said, you know, I, I, just, I just don't agree with you. I don't think that's where we are. But I certainly love you, brother, and I appreciate it if you'll listen to the rest of my stuff. There was another man in another part of the congregation jumped up and asked for the microphone. We gave it to him. He said to this fella who, who had been speaking, he said, you understand American teaching. You understand American Constitution. You understand what it is to be a good American. What he's teaching us is what it is to be a good Christian. And those may not continue to be the same thing. Well, I accepted that as a grand compliment. But we went home that night. We went to our cabins that night. Saturday morning we came back and this fellow who had stood up and had been very outspoken and vocal and almost called him for a walkout in, in my teaching, uh, he came and he asked for the mic and I thought, uh-oh, here we go. Well, you know, I hope I get paid anyway, but I'm going home. <laughs> but it wasn't that way at all. He said, Dr. Neff, I want to tell you that I was awake most of the night last night. And he said, I, this is hard stuff for me to digest. But he said, the Lord has spoken to me. He said, I just want to say to sisters and brothers, he said, first I want to say to you, Dr. Neff, I'm sorry. And I said, don't need an apology to disagree. But then he said, I want to say to sisters and brothers that I was wrong. We are in exile. Now, I don't, you know, I'm not saying just because that one guy agreed, you've got to agree. Not at all. Don't, don't hear it that way. What I'm saying is I think we're farther down this road towards exile than most of us find it easy to admit. Is that a fair statement? Fair enough? And I kept looking and looking and looking for an example, an illustration that would help make my point. And God gave me one. He about killed me, but he gave me one. Nancy and I were driving on US 33. Some of you may know the road between Fort Wayne, Indiana and Columbus, Ohio. And you get down in there between Bell Fountain and Marysville 
and 33 is four lanes, 70 mile an hour. It rides like an interstate. And we were someplace over the high point, someplace over Bell Fountain, or beyond Bell Fountain, headed towards Marysville, and there was virtually no traffic, just no traffic around at all. And so I was in the, in the slow lane, pretty much unimpeded, and running uh, at least 70 mile an hour. <laughs> now, we were, we were going 70 or a few miles over. And I, <clears throat> I see that coming onto the entrance ramp is a rig that looks a lot like, the, oh, sorry, <laughs> that looks a lot like this one. Now, this isn't, I didn't stop and take pictures, you understand. But I went online and said, you know, try to find something that looks like, it was a big truck, heavy-duty truck, 250, 350, Ford, that kind of truck, and a long, flat trailer like this, empty. And this guy's coming onto the entrance ramp, and so I got over into the fast lane, giving him plenty of room to get on, to, to let him merge. And I think now, looking back on it with a little more objecti objectivity than I had that day, I really think what happened is when I slid over, we were positioned just such a way that I got into his blind spot. And so he came onto the highway, and then he just kept right on coming. Why he needed the fast lane, I still don't know, but he came from the exit ramp kind of straight across the slow lane towards the fast lane. And I looked to my left, and there's a drop-off into the median, no place to go, no place at all to go to get out of his way. And I got on a brake hard, real hard, didn't I? I got on the brake hard, and... and by the time he got into the fast lane in front of me, Nancy says I'm prone to exaggeration, but the last time I told this story, she said, you didn't give enough, it, it was worse than that. But I think between, if we could have taken a stop action photo, I think between my front bumper and the, and the back end of his trailer, there wasn't more than a foot and a half. She doesn't exaggerate. I exaggerate, she doesn't exaggerate. There wasn't more than a foot and a half. We were that close to a disaster. <laughs> you know what happened? Dave was talking about family the other night and how, you know, we're, none, of, none of us are perfect. You know, we all have these communication issues and kind of stuff. Nancy and I do pretty well together. We've been through some pretty tough times in 45 years, 43 years. And we're, you know, we're, we're kind of beginning to learn how to communicate. Except when the crisis hit, she said, you didn't even honk the horn. And I said, I was driving, I didn't have time. <laughs> and both of us in kind of that tone of voice, you know. And by that time, I'm slowed down, we're slowed down to probably close to 20 mile an hour. And this guy whips on in and, and he's gone. And we're going, whew. I was entitled to that lane. The law said I could have that lane at 70 mile an hour. That was my lane. I have rights. I can stay in that lane. But as the National Safety Council said a few years ago, you can be dead right. <laughs> and I, I think that's where we are, sisters and brothers. I got my rights. I can do it this. I, I know where I'm a Christian and I'm an American and I know what I can do. Well, yeah, but you can be dead right too. I think, I think, God is calling us to go quietly into exile. Continuing with Jeremiah's instructions, we've said that he instructed them to prepare for the long haul, to live as good citizens, to go quietly into exile. Now look in verse 10. 
still within this letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exile. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you to exile. Did you hear all the I, I, I's in there? It's about enough to make you think God's a narcissist if you just got those two paragraphs. What it says, I think, is this, that exile Christians, you're called upon to recognize God's sovereignty. This is almost as hard for me as going quietly into exile, for I am committed, trained Wesleyan. I went to Asbury Seminary back in the day when Asbury Seminary was, was uh, I, I took theology from Al Coppage and from other guys who are absolutely, totally sold on the notion of the free will of man. You know, and, and if Al or, or Dr. Arnett or some of those guys ever mentioned the, the sovereignty of God, it was, well, yeah, God in his sovereignty gave you a free will. <laughs> and so I'm, this is cutting edge stuff for me. And it's uncomfortable for me, frankly, to even talk about it. Because this is where I'm learning. I, I was so, I was taken and I need to find a way to have a better conversation. When Dave said first night, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in free will man. I also believe in sovereignty. Like it was, and I'm saying, wow, I want to get there. I want to I get to a place where it's that, that easy to understand. But I'm not there. I'm struggling to understand the sovereignty of God. A guy by the name of Leslie Weatherhead, way back at the time of the, of the Second World War, wrote. And he wrote a little book called The Will of God. And in that book, Weatherhead suggests that it's best to understand the will of God in two parts. He says, first, there's the perfect will of God. The way things would be if God imposed His will on the universe totally and completely. But he said, since the fall, God has stepped back from His perfect will and we need to think now in terms of God's permissive will. Is God still sovereign? Weatherhead would say absolutely. But his perfect will does not prevail. And he used in that book the Garden, the Garden of Eden as, a, as an illustration. He said God's perfect will was that Adam and Eve would walk with him in the garden. That they'd stay away from the tree, just like he told them. That they'd be obedient. And that they'd have fellowship there, God and human beings. But when sin came into the picture, God's permissive will became what he hung on to rather than his, his, his clear and perfect will. 
You've got to be careful about the choice of terms or it becomes blasphemy like God was trapped in this because of sin. So I've been focusing on God's permissive will. I think God's permissive will, for example, for America is that the evangelical thought be marginalized for a time. But that's just theory. I'm talking about how God's permissive will and God's sovereignty affects Nancy and me. The last eight months, she's been battling cancer for the second time. Uh, no connection between the first time and the second, the oncologist says. Nancy says, I just got lucky again, eh? Uh, except we don't believe that we just got lucky again. We believe somehow this fits into God's permissive will. Now, those of you who are into the sovereignty of God and try, want to try to teach me, don't you tell me God gave her cancer, I'll pop you one. Cancer's not of God. Cancer is evil. Cancer is of the devil. But my Lord knows what's going to happen in my life before it happens. And he looked at Nancy in my life and said, I'm going, to, I'm going to let this happen. Somehow, I think he's saying, because it's good for you. Or maybe it's good for your ministry. Or maybe he's saying, because I want you to tell the folks at Bayshore Camp about it, and somebody there is going to understand in a new way. I don't know. I just know that we are coming to the place where we can thank God in the midst of cancer. And Nancy's ahead of me on this. She, can come to, she has come to the place where she can thank God for the cancer. Uh, I'm still struggling with that. I, I just got to tell you that. But I can thank God in the midst of it. I can praise God in the midst of it. A couple of years ago, because it takes so long for anything to happen in higher education, I said to my boss, do you suppose I could get a sabbatical? For those of you who don't know, a sabbatical is, a, is an educational opportunity that we got at universities that nobody else ever gets. You know, if you work seven or eight years, then you apply for a sabbatical, and if you tell the university, I'm going to study this, and I'm going to do this service project, and I need to rest so that I can come back and serve another seven years, they let you have a whole semester off and pay you. And I got a sabbatical last spring. It's so cool. We were so excited. You know, I said, I want it in the spring, not the fall, because I hate winter. So, I, and I can do this study from Gulf Shores, Alabama, where we really love life. So, we're going down to L.A., lower Alabama. We're going down to L.A., and we're going to study this interaction between Judaism and Christianity and the communication patterns that take place there. And I'm going to do this service project and that service project. And we had it all laid out, and everything is cool. And December 15th is coming. And as soon as I get my grades in, we are going to go on sabbatical. In the last couple of days of November, Nancy was diagnosed. And so we need a surgeon in Carmel. And uh, I can't even pronounce his, his specialty, the guy that makes a, an obturator to help her with the hole that's in her mouth now because they took the cancer out of her mouth. Uh, we need him in Mooresville, Indiana. And all of a sudden, we ain't going to Gulf Shores. And all of a sudden, uh, Blake's back in charge of the kitchen. That's, a de that's dangerous. <laughs> and uh, the housekeeping and the chauffeuring and... But you know what? 
God knew we were going to battle that junk when I applied for a sabbatical. I have come to the place where I understand that. You say, man, this, this guy is so elementary. Uh, I'm just, just telling you how I am. I've come to the place where I say, wow, isn't it cool that when I thought I was getting a sabbatical for some things, God said, no, you're going to need these times. And he knew what was coming. Some of you perhaps uh, have been on a cruise ship. And uh, you know how you leave port in Miami or wherever you departed from, and they say, tomorrow morning, we're going to be in Jamaica. And you go about your business, eating like a pig, <laughs> watching folks gamble and drink too much, and going to a show, and, you know, it's, there's just, it's, like a, it's like a floating city. And so all this stuff is going on. And I'm thinking... Who's going to make sure we get to Jamaica? I haven't been up in the Helms booth. Surely they need me up there to run things. How are we going to get to Jamaica if I'm not, if I'm not running the ship? Well, because there's a helmsman that is. There, there's one who knows the course to Jamaica. And he's not eating too much. He's not drinking. He's not gambling. He's not going to shows or watching the folks that are. He's doing a job. And that job is bringing us ever closer to port. I think we have, over the last 250 years, been deluded as Americans into thinking that we were the helmsmen. Into thinking that we're going to do it this way because we're Christians. And Christians in America have these opportunities and these rights. And I think what God is saying to us through Jeremiah this morning is, I'm in charge. I'll get the ship to port. Do you know there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God? Did you read that part? That day is coming. And I'm saying, let's get on with it, Lord. What we need are a set of laws and a set of rules that will make it happen in America right now. And then we'll send that out across the globe. And God's saying, you ain't the helmsman. I'll get this thing to port. The sovereignty of God. Man, these are tough lessons for, for we Westlands especially, I submit. I'm using that term as a theological understanding, not a denominational group. I don't, I've never been called upon to think about the sovereignty of God. And I'm an American. I've spent 65 years in this land. And the reality is, Going quietly any place is not in my spirit. And yet I submit to you that these clear instructions to the remnant are instructions to you and to me. This is what God is saying in 21st century America. He's giving us unprecedented opportunities, but with a whole new set of rules. I want you to take a look with me, those of you, I'm having a little trouble running this today. I want you, those of you who have access to a copy of the case studies, I, I want you to look at the one on page 18. It's called the Jesus Lunch Case. And I really want you to digest this case with me and for me because I believe it'll give an opportunity for some folks in your group and in the group at large to respond to these four teachings 
uh, these four instructions of Jeremiah. Here's the case. In Middleton, Middleton, Wisconsin, five mothers, hear it, just, just five ladies who are part of the remnant, five ladies, evangelical Christian, five mamas, probably from the same church, although I don't think I've even read that. Five mothers provide a sack lunch. They buy it, they put it together, free of charge, and they share a Bible-based message, devotions, if you will, with students during the lunch period from Middleton High School. The Jesus Lunch, that's how they know it in Middleton, is held in a shelter house of a park, get the, get the logistics, located across the street from the school. So the high school's on one side of the street, there's a public park on the other side of the street, five ladies show up once a week with a bunch of sack lunches and a devotion for high school students and host the Jesus Lunch. The event is well attended, but it's also sparked protests from students and adults who argue that it's inappropriate to offer free food in exchange for time to proselytize on public property. Others note that the proximity to the school and the fact that the school sometimes leases the park for events might cause students to get the idea that this is a school-sponsored lunch. So, so get, get the picture here. Sometimes the school uses the park, and since the school uses the park sometimes, we can't be having these five women doing Jesus stuff in the park and giving away food, bribing these kids into, into Bible study. They argue that they're burning the separation of church and state lines. The Freedom From Religion Foundation got involved, and the co-president made this comment. They should go to the church. It should not be this predatory, his word, opportunistic bribery of big lunches and handing out Bibles and Jesus literature at the same time. They ought to go to the church. But what do you think? Here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you in your groups uh, to, to apply what you've learned in these days to this case. What's going on in Middleton and what should we do about it? And the main question is this, what course of action should these five take? Would you get with four other people, maximum, group of five maximum, and answer that question in your group, and then Kevin's going to move around and give you an opportunity to speak to the whole group about your group's understanding. But for right now, let's take, uh, we got four minutes till the bottom of the hour. In four minutes, what course of action should they take? Go! was trying to help.
Got about three minutes. Come up with a course of action. What should they do? Let's see what the groups come up with. And they All right, if I could have your attention just for a minute, please. Your attention right back here. Here's what we want to do. I'd like to hear from two or three representatives of groups. Thanks for your attention. All right, let's bring it to a dull Are roar. Are you freshmen? Yep, they're all a bunch of freshmen, Kevin. Yeah, this is the problem with those first-year students, Dr. Neff. What, here's what we want to do. I'd like to hear from two or three of your groups, spokespersons for your groups, on what you think ought to be the course of action. And then Kevin has got an update on, on this case. He just Googled it, and we know where they were at least a year ago at this time, and we can project a little bit in terms of what's going on. So what, who, who's, who's going to speak Who's, who's ready to speak for your group or tell us what you think is going on here or ought to be done? I got one back there. Thank you. Um, we just said, it took us about two seconds. Okay, ladies, keep on keeping on. Let's go for it. Because it's a public, public location, the only time that anything outside the school property is considered, in Michigan, legality-wise, the only time anything outside of school property is considered school property is when they have an event there. So like the school bus itself or if they go to a loons game or something like that, that would be considered school property for the purposes of discipline of the children. But as far as what we can do in public locations, we can do that. Okay. So keep on keeping on, ladies. Good. And hear what she's saying. Even though we've been marginalized, these people are on public property. There's no law against what they're doing, and that really uh, informs this case, I think. Yes, right over here we got it. And then I got one up here. Yeah, we discussed two it seems like they're doing the right thing, but with our lesson, it says go quietly. So that's the confusing part about the go quietly. Okay, let's talk about that. Can I, may I talk about that confusion just a minute? 
When I say go quietly into exile, I think what Jeremiah was saying to the people was, when, when King Nebuchadnezzar says, or when those in authority say, and I would take a different position if this thing went to court, if the Freedom From Religion group uh, took it to court and, they, and these five ladies lost, then I think they should go quietly someplace else to do the lunch. But right now, they're just exercising rights, they're exercising, and, and, and using their freedoms. Yeah. Uh, does that make sense? Am I being clear? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hats off to these ladies. I want to applaud these ladies. I think they're doing a great job. And part of the reason I brought this case is because I've been misunderstood too many times. I want you to see there are some things we can still do and ought to do but that's short of getting our backbone and saying, you're not telling me what to do, and I'll go in contempt of court, and so on and so on. Who else? Right over. For clarification, what you're saying, if, you, if you're ruled against, then go quietly along. But up that, fight it, get the ACLJ involved and fight it tooth and nail to protect their rights as best we can. That's my opinion, and that's the way I'm interpreting Jeremiah. Once they're ruled against, I think this case changes. This man back here, I wish he would speak, had a good analysis, because he thinks where we, I got off track in our country is after World War II in 1945. The men come home, relieved the war was over, right? And, and, and started going out on their boats on Sundays and, and uh, did not take their children to church and all that type of stuff. That's where we got off the rails, and if you count the years, 2017, wow. we're about 70 years so, past the beginning of that. So here, here's somebody who has a better historic, right here's next, please. Somebody who has a better historic pers perspective than I do, saying this is way older than Woodstock, goes all the way back to the war. Yes. Okay, as far as these women were concerned, we thought they should approach the park. The high school had leased that um, pavilion, and there's no reason that they wouldn't be able to also. But the biggest thing is these are high school students. They are able to decide. They don't have to go. They already know it's the Jesus lunch. And so these are adults who are pushing the issue, and these kids are old enough Very to go. good. Let's hear from this lady back here, and then you give us the update, if you would, Kevin. Well, I, I think when we started talking about it, the thing that rose up in me was if you go back to Daniel. Daniel was told not to pray, and yet he still did it. And I'm also thinking that in the case of these students, if they did have to move to a different location, if they were making an impact, those students are going to follow. Wherever they set up shop, they're right. going to follow. Right. And so just I think just keep on going. Let, let me just raise this question. What's, the, the, embedded in that is the question, what's different th than this? What's different in this from what Daniel did? And I think what Daniel did was to go quietly to his prayer closet and continue to follow his convictions. But he didn't, he's not on public property doing a public kind of thing. He's in the, in the privacy of his own prayer closet. That, to me, makes a huge difference. I want to be clear. I support what these women are doing. At, at this point, it seems to me, if, they are, if they're ruled against, uh, that uh, then they need a different course of action if we're going to go quietly. But Kevin Googled this and found out that we may be winning. Well, of course, it's on the Internet, so it must be true. 
But it's amazing if you just uh, Google Jesus Lunch Middleton, Wisconsin, you'll, you'll get some articles up on it. But basically, September 2016, there were 450 kids that went to the Jesus Lunch. We're not smoking them. We're not talking about 20 people or 30. Um, Good for those women. And uh, the schools had an exclusive lease to the park during the school hours. And so one of the ways they sidestepped the issue was breaking that exclusive lease so that it separated them from the Jesus lunch. That seemed good. Um, the city has to work through all those First Amendment, you know, free speech rights and the like. Hats but, off to the school board, too, by the way. Well. Somebody on that school board is exercising their rights and holy living in modern America, aren't they? I don't know anything about Middleton um, uh, Wisconsin, but at least the picture that it showed of a pavilion just loaded with kids, um, this is not necessarily what you would call inner city. Uh, this was very homogenous. Almost every face that I saw there was white. Almost every face that I saw there, let's just say, was not socioeconomically disadvantaged. I have a feeling there were some choices that were being made you know, to attend this. Yeah. I don't even know that they needed the free lunch per se, but, but boy, did they want that, that group. So yeah. I'm sure there was a lot of win-wins in it. And so, so the protests seem to be diminishing, but there's always going to be, well, somebody else is feeling marginalized and, now. And, and some lessons here, it seems to me. First off, hats off to these five women. They found a creative way to be in ministry in their local community. And so can you. There are other ways to do this, or this way may, may spread. And then somebody on that school board knows Jesus. I just about guarantee you. Somebody on that school board came from a local church and said, I can still make a difference within the structure, within the rules, within the laws, and ran for the school board to where they could sit down and say, let's break that lease and help those women. And it's working. So right here, please. We're winning on some of those fronts. I, as my brother here shared, um, I, I really, this morning, through this lesson, got what I believe is some clarification. And I like that 70-year timeline. And I think uh, what happened on the National Day of Prayer is so huge in our country. I remember uh, in the morning, we get our daughter ready to go to work and that, and my wife would be up. And uh, TV, the local station, TV5, I can't believe how biased they are, anti-Christian. They never mention anything positive about the church. And I was screaming at the TV because they were saying, if there's anything special going on today, if it's the National Day of uh, Chipmunk Cohabitation or whatever, they're going to have it. They're going to have it on there and celebrate it. I, I'm screaming at it's the National Day of Prayer. And they never mention the National Day of Prayer yeah. until in the evening news they said, oh, they signed a religious liberties bill, and it may possibly hurt some of the LBGT community. I'm thinking, really? And when it came out in the press, every once in a while, usually sports, I'll laminate the front pages and put it up in my, yeah. my basement. But... I laminated that religious freedom. That was huge. And then uh, my mother gets Dr. Graham's uh, publication, Decision Magazine. 
And when they got into the details of what took place, and all these men in the president's cabinet that are seeking God's face, yes. and Vice President Pence leading them in Bible studies and effectual, fervent prayer, but I really believe, and I got pondering about that case you brought up. I was unaware of that with uh, he lost his job. He didn't get hired because of his religious stance. Yes. And then I, this sack lunch situation, I think even the, that um, today, if you go into the court of law, I think you could have tremendous success arguing that your religious freedoms are being violated. Not that you lost your job because they have a different scientific approach. Okay. My religious freedoms are being violated, and I would even go so far as to say we've ended the 70 years and we're coming out of exile. Wow. And I really want to believe that wow. because I have felt in exile as a Gideon, it was... I received a testament in my fifth grade classroom in 1957 or something, or maybe a little later. And Gideons have not been allowed in public schools. I would even dare to say, Rick, I would believe that soon we are going to be back in those fifth grade classrooms sharing the gospel message just like we do in Guyana, just like we do in India. Just like we do in South America, we are coming back into the schools because kids are fed up. They want the truth, and they know that their adult leadership is lying to them from Woodstock right to today. Thanks for the voice of optimism. You all see the issue. You all see the issue. The question is, where are we on a timeline? And I, I, would, I, I would in defense say, even if that's true, that we're coming out of it, None of the strategies we talked about, none of the investments we talked about need to change. You can still use those, whether we're mainstream or exile. Last word, and then we're going to quit. I think it just goes to speak of our teens are so involved on their phones, but they hunger for a relationship. And I think the teens making the trip to go across needs to speak to us that we need to be living life beside these teens. We need to be finding ways to go in and to speak to them to draw them out, to have a relationship, to sit and have a meal with them. And I think that's, that's huge. Perfect last word, no matter what era we're in, no matter what the time is. Let's, uh, he's going with purple. Oh, I see. He's All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time that we've spent together. Thank you for speaking to our hearts and minds. Thank you that uh, even through uh, some disagreement about where we are and what the time is, we can still sense your voice speaking to us about strategies and about investments and how we do, how we do the, the important business of the kingdom in this land in these days. I pray your richest blessings upon the individuals in this room, on this camp, on the service that remains. Will you be honored and will you be glorified in Jesus' name? Thank you, church. Let's thank Blake once again and his wife, Nancy, for being with us this week.